Let's take our Bibles and turn to that Psalm, Psalm 118, and we're going to read verses 13 through 29. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, beginning to read at verse 13. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders has rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And here is Hosanna. O Lord, save us. Hosanna. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19. There, there's something I just neglected to do, and I want to make this right. And, and uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman who often pushes me and reminds me one of the things that happens is my sermons come home to bite me and uh, once in a while Kathy will remind me if I'm sick well did you get the you know the board guys to pray over you and anoint you with oil well no well why not because I'm not sick enough yet um, but um, and, and hun it's not my intention to embarrass you but I, I know you've been sick and I want to pray for you Okay, in public and honor you here. You're my wife and I love you and I want you to get better. So please pray with me. Father, thank you for Kathy and the many years we've lived together and you know she's not feeling well. And I just pray your hand of healing and blessing upon her life and our home. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy wife, happy life. Right? All right, Luke 19. Verse 28, it's Palm Sunday.
Verse 29, rather. Luke 19, verse 29. As he, Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. I don't know how you would react to that if someone came and, and climbed in your car and said, my buddy needs it. Um, but the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And that happened some 40 years later in A.D. 70. Jerusalem has been the most captured and recaptured city in all of the world. Now let me take you back a ways to when I first started working. And one of the rude shocks I had when I started a job was that people had the audacity to tell me what to do. Not only did I have to deal with superintendents and supervisors and foremen, but there were others who either had some form of authority or thought they had, and they needed to tell me what to do. I started working, I spent my first summer working when I was 14 years old, and I worked for a farmer, and yes, I know how to milk cows by hand, and how to shovel manure and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And after that, the next year, I started working in the sawmills. I piled lots of lumber. I, I worked in small sawmills. I worked in larger sawmills. I worked in the bush. I worked in many different places. And it seemed in my work experience that this world is filled with petty tyrants who seem to get their self-worth in life by trying to control others and telling them what to do. But I soon learned to play the game. You see, there are people in this world who have authority when you're working and you need to submit to them. But there are others who think they have authority and you play the game with them. Outwardly you submit, but inwardly you resist. 
either actively or passively, you resist those who try and exert some form of authority after you. You need to learn to get along. There's a pecking order in the workplace. You need to learn where to sit and not to sit in the coffee room. You need to learn when to speak and not to speak. You learn who you can trust. You learn who is dependable and who will help you. And you learn who will hurt you and stab you in the back. You respect those you trust and you ignore those who are posers and pretenders. It's one of the realities of going to work. And sometimes we call those kinds of people straw bosses. A straw boss often can be a very real position. I remember working on some forest fires where people were straw bosses and they're kind of like a lead hand, but there are people who think they are straw bosses. And apparently that term comes from back in the days of the threshing crews. You see, the real boss of a threshing crew worked at the end where all the grain got fed into the threshing machine. A straw boss worked at the other end where all the garbage came out and was in charge of that. So a straw boss is really in charge of nothing. And you can pretty much ignore a straw boss because a straw boss doesn't have any real power. A straw boss you can probably ignore. And today the word straw boss is often a cinnamon Synonym for someone who is a petty and vindictive superior. You see, we as human beings resist and resent authority. We don't like authority. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. Especially someone who we think has no right to do it. And that Resistance and resentment interferes with our self-determination and it starts when we're little kids and it runs deep and wide through our personality and we learn to hide and control it till some degree but it's there till we die and it often manifests itself in old people who, who refuse to submit to authority even if it means I will not take my pills because then I still have some form of self-determination. And the trouble is, is that concept or that reality is part of our spiritual lives as well. And when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we as Christians need to genuinely and humbly submit to our Savior. Now we agree with that in principle. But it's often difficult to put into practice. Let's take a look at the situation in which Jesus found himself. A little bit of a history lesson. Israel wound up as a nation in slavery in Egypt. Moses came along, you know the story, went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, I won't. The 10 plagues, the exodus, the journey through the Red Sea getting to the promised land, and Moses sent 12 men and went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. You know the song. 
uh, and they came back and, and two of them said, we can do this. The other 10 said, nope, not going to do this. And everybody said, okay, we can't do this, so we're just going to shrink back. And, and 39 years of, I think, something like 1,500 funerals a day while they waited for 2.5 million people to die. And finally, all those people were dead, that whole generation, age 20 and up, when they decided not to go into the promised land, were dead. And they went into the promised land, and you have the days of judges, people like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and, and some of those other names that you know so well. And those were the days when Israel ran under what was called a theocracy. God kind of ran the show, and he had his judges, and he had his prophets, but they had no central government. And people said, well, that's not good enough. We want to be like everybody else. We want, to, we want to be cool. And so we, in order to be cool, we need a king. We need a king to lead us into battle like everyone else. We need a king. What we need around here is a king. Somebody better get us a king. And so God gave him a king. And that turned into a royal disaster down the road. And so now Israel finds itself in a situation where they have been under the thumb of foreign powers for many, many years. First there were the Assyrians who came along, then there were the Babylonians, then there were the Medo-Persians, then there were the Greeks, then there were the Romans, and here's where they find themselves. And they're still in all kinds of trouble under foreign occupation. And they're waiting for someone to come and straighten it all out, to set them free. They're waiting for a king, someone who would come and deliver them from the mess in which they found themselves. And that king was called their Messiah. wonder what's going on over there. It sounds like a lot more fun than in here, doesn't it? But God had warned them through Samuel what would happen. When you get a king, he said, here's, here's what's going to happen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. You see, a human king isn't necessarily a good thing. A human king, human royalty is basically parasitic. A parasite is something that sucks the life out of its host without providing, really providing a whole lot in return. And God, through Samuel the prophet, had told them what would happen when, when they get a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9, God says to Samuel, Listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Verse 11, he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters 
to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the people said, I don't care, we want to be cool anyway, so give us a king. And so he gave them Saul, and after Saul came David, and after David came Solomon, and by then they'd had enough of having a king. A king is expected to provide for his people and to protect him, but reality has often proven that those in power tend to look after themselves at the expense of their people. Do you remember a gentleman by the name of Muammar Gaddafi? Remember him? He was in Libya. Okay? Gaddafi left behind an oil-rich nation of six million people traumatized by a rule that drained it of its institutions after four decades when all issues came down to one man and his family. Gaddafi was notorious for his extravagant outfits, ranging from white suits and sunglasses to military uniforms with frilled epaulets to brilliantly colored robes decorated with the map of Africa. He styled himself as a combination Bedouin chief and philosopher king with titles from leader of the resolution to king of the kings of Africa. Do you remember another guy by the name of Saddam Hussein? You know, when they went into his houses and his palaces and found all this gold-plated stuff? See, royalty basically tends to be parasitic. It sucks the life out of the people. And you might know of African dictators who have sucked the life out of their people to provide for themselves an opulent lifestyle. And sadly to say, there are even some Christian leaders who do that. And Israel reached its political zenith under David and Solomon in terms of prestige, but royalty drove it into the ground. If you're in 1 Samuel, just turn over a few pages to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 12. And what happened there in order to fuel Solomon's extravagant lifestyle, he had to suck the life out of his people. And when Solomon died and his throne, or his son came to the throne, a delegation went to his son Rehoboam in verse 4 of chapter 12 and said, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam went to his advisors. He went to the older advisors, and they said, Lighten up, buddy, because the people are going to walk if you don't. Then he went to his buddies and he said, you know, they, they said, well, if you lighten up, you're not going to get all the privileges you had, so, so teach those people a lesson. And so, in verse 14, we read that he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father, make your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father, scourge you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people 
And then verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons to your tents? O Israel, look after your own house, O David, and said basically, see ya, dude. We're not putting up with that. And the human reality is that this is often the basic response to all authority, including that of God. The basic human condition is that of selfishness. But what happened? Yeah. What happened was that human royalty turned extremely selfish. And now here is this other king comes riding into Jerusalem. He's the king that they've been waiting for. He's the Messiah that is going to be selfless. He's the one that is going to provide for his people, that he is the one who is going to provide a benevolent rule. They're sick and tired of the Romans and the Greeks and everyone else that has been part of their This people of Israel were expecting a king who would free them from centuries of oppression and restore the splendor and freedom of Israel, a king who would be selfless and benevolent, who would gently lead and provide for his people, a king who would come riding in on a donkey, gentle and harmless, rather than a king who is riding in on a horse, on the horse of a warrior. And they were excited. And so in Luke and in in the other Gospels, you read the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, of the people shouting, Hosanna, oh God, save us. Save us from these Romans. Save us from the oppressors. Save us from selfish and authoritative or authoritarian and, and selfish kings. And here Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. And five days later, the dream fades. Because the Messiah, they thought, would come and set them free is nailed to a cross. And he dies. And for 2,000 years, we've been waiting. But the reality is, he's coming back. Look with me at Revelation Chapter 19, he's coming back. This time, not gentle and harmless and riding on a donkey. This time, he's coming back to do battle. This time, he's coming back to win the victory. Revelation 19, verse 11. He's coming back. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire on on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. 
The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's our king. And he's coming back. And if he is our king, think about this. If he really is our king, if we acknowledge him as a king back on Palm Sunday, if we acknowledge him as a king today, you and I have some responsibilities to that king, do we not? If he really is a king, then we need to submit to him, do we not? Does a king not get to make the rules? You see, in democracy, majority rules, but it's often a vocal minority or others who make the law. And royalty has the right and the power to make decisions and to make laws. And we have the Bible. People still question that. You don't negotiate with royalty. When that king speaks, he says something is right and something is wrong. That's just the way it is. Romans chapter 13, verse 7. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. We owe Jesus as our king. We owe him our submission and our honor and our respect. Let's bring this home. What about church? You see, a lot of people say, I don't like going to church because it doesn't do a whole lot for me, or I don't like what goes on, or I don't like that person, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. Church isn't about you and me. We come here to honor Jesus. One of the realities that is happening here is, is we're having a Good Friday service this week. It's an interchurch Good Friday service. Do you know why we, we have an interchurch Good Friday service? Because a bunch of us pastors got together many years ago and said, you know what, nobody shows up for a Good Friday service. Let's all do it together so we can at least get a group of people out. Hey, if you respect your friend by going to his funeral service, why wouldn't you go to Jesus' funeral service? You know, we have to get half a dozen churches together to get a couple of hundred people to come out to a Good Friday service. I think that's a little sad. People say, well, it's, you know, it's a holiday. I mean, like, good night. If you owe honor, then honor the king. If you need to show respect, I know it's going to interfere with your plans. You see, when it comes to church, it doesn't really matter if church is inconvenient. It doesn't really matter if you don't have time. It doesn't really matter if you don't feel like it. It doesn't really matter if it's raining or if it's hot or if it's cold or if you're busy or if you're tired or if you need some me time or if you have other things to do. The priority is on the king, not on me. Does that make sense? You know, am I blowing smoke out of my ears here? 
You see, if we're going to acknowledge Jesus as king, if we're going to say that he's my king, boy, it better show, don't you think? He's not a straw boss. A straw boss is someone whom you can ignore, someone who is a petty tyrant, someone who thinks he's somebody when he isn't. He's my king. He's my royalty. He's my sovereign. He's my superior. I owe him my respect. I owe him my loyalty. I owe him my, my submission. I owe him my resources. Last week, put Colossians 1 verse 18 up there, please, Jeremy. The Bible says he is the head of the body of the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The King James uses an old word that we don't use anymore. And that word is preeminence. It means that he is over and above everything else. He needs first place in my life. Last week I had, was it last week? I don't know, I had the privilege of spending a night in, in emergency in Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon. And, and, and you know, I walked into emergency and I, I'm standing there at this wicket and, and you know, waiting for somebody to help me. And finally this guy comes over and says, you need to sit down over there and wait your turn. Okay. So I sat down and I waited my turn. You know, there were other people lined up there. And then they called my name. And they're glaring at me. How did he get to be first? Well, I don't know. Maybe because I'm good looking or my wife's with me and she's looking really worried. I don't know. But to have preeminence means you get to be first. And if Jesus has the preeminence, he gets to be first. And that means he gets dibs on my time. He gets dibs on my money. He gets dibs on my resources. He gets the preeminence in my gifts and abilities. He gets the cup of cold water. He gets the hot coals when he needs them. He gets forgiveness when I need to extend forgiveness to others even when I don't feel like it. He gets grace because he's extended grace to me. He gets humility from me because that's what he asks from me. He gets the preeminence. He's my king. Right? He's my king. Run that video, Jeremy. It's my team to come up, please, for music. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. 
highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him, for yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. stand with us I'm forgiven because you were Lord Jesus you are our king and we acknowledge that and Lord I know that I always haven't always brought you honor and submission and obedience and respect and I ask your forgiveness for that Lord I pray that you would help us as your people to serve you wholeheartedly faithfully respectfully and obediently Lord grant us your grace and your peace and as we head into this week where we hold a funeral service for you <laughs> then we celebrate Easter next Sunday. Lord, remind us of how much you love us, how much you care for us, of how gracious and how compassionate you are. Lord, may we walk under your blessing and your provision this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We're dismissed.